You're not going to open the Zoom chat? I, I'll indulge you guys, sure. Oh, <laughs> you don't have to. It's like a gender. It's like a gender reveal. Of course, if it were like a gender reveal, then taking a test would not qualify because science is silent right. on what gender you are. Isn't that weird that there's like some people who believe that gender is utterly, utterly insignificant and totally fluid, and some people believe that it's so important you have to light off fireworks and burn the, the city down. It's like nobody's just, nobody's just like, well, whatever. We live into a different reality. Hey, it's the first blob culture of 2022. I'm John Pahoritz in New York, elsewhere in New York. Rob Long. Hi, Rob. And in Washington, D.C., fortunately not trapped on a highway for 19 hours on, on ice, Jonah Goldberg. Hey, John. Uh, Tim Kaine, you may know, the vice presidential nominee in 2016, senator from Virginia, as as we are recording this, is still sitting in his car having eaten one orange since Sunday night. And uh, I think at least that reveals that the insane, incom- terrifying incompetence of uh, both Virginia and the highway system and whatever um, – you know, that the rain raineth on the great and, and small alike. That so, a senator should be trapped there, and they haven't, like, sent in a helicopter to get him out. Governor Northam had this great statement where he said, we have been doing everything we could possibly do within the power of the state of Virginia to deal with this, which is one of these statements that, like, is actually more damning if it's true. I mean, so you're telling me, like, if there was a suicide bomber, on the highway and people were trapped like the best the state of virginia could do is say it's going to be about 20 hours before we can get you out of there <laughs> i mean come on yeah there's so many things they could have done first of all but second of all it's just sort of like what what a testament to your incompetence that you know it would be better if you were lying you know but anyway i mean i made this point on on, on the commentary podcast today that we th- this is some a uh, very important symbolic moment about how basically we have now spent two years being governed by uh, I- incompetence right. during crises. Right. And that um, we are, this is really bad for the party of government. That if you, if, cumulatively, you add it all up. Um, the people who like put their faith in how public health officials and you know were so disappointed or gleefully disappointed in Trump's inability to get his arms around or make sense out of what was going on in the pandemic right. and then Biden all and now you have this just perfect symbolic a highway the artery of the East Coast and a senator is sitting in his car for twenty hours. <laughs> well, you know, on the other hand, it's, it, he hasn't had this much press in a long time. A lot of people <laughs> were not aware that he was still in government, and he has to be. You have to remind people who he was. More people will remember him for being stuck in his car than being the vice presidential nominee in 2016. Yeah, that is probably true. But there is um, a trivia question. That is for sure. <laughs> yeah. I want to. I want to bring this down a little bit to earth, but also make a point oh. about uh, the times that we're living in. I'll be delicate because I know we have delicate listeners, including my mother. Um, but I think it is axiomatically true. I don't. You know, it's sort of like my um, my dad used to say: you don't have to necessarily know facts um, firsthand to know that something is a fact. And he would say, for instance, I am one hundred percent positive that there is somebody who's over six feet tall with only one eye in India. I don't know where he is. I don't know what his name is, but we know it's true. Similarly, given that people were stuck basically for 24 hours in their cars, somebody had to, at some point, uh, go number two and did not have available resources to do it in a way that they would prefer, which means that someone had to get out of their car and go across the black ice to the tree line and take care of business. And that's bad enough, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. It's a crisis. But because of the age that we live in, there is a non-trivial chance that that person, an accountant, a senatorial aide, who knows, 
will be captured will be captured on video and there will be a TikTok video of somebody dropping a deuce along I-95. <laughs> and I think that that's it tells you something about the world that we like you have to think about Classy. that. Um, when doing exigent things is kind of a sign of the times that we live in. I just thought I'd throw that out. Uh, I would, I don't, like, couldn't you, I mean. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people, uh, right? uh, Yeah, but but I think you're absolutely, absolutely correct. That that is a situation that has obtained. Um, But is there a way, like, can you open both the passenger side and the, and the, and the, and the passenger, the front seat and the, the front passenger door and the rear passenger door, doesn't that create a, like a mini stall in a sense? Yes, but then you're like, don't open that window for the next 16 hours. Well, but it's so cold <laughs> and you're in the snow that actually it's not going to, you know, you're actually, I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually working through this scenario kind of, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess yeah. what I'm more interested in is like in a time, as just to go back to what John was saying, at a time when if you uh if you're of the left, you could talk about, you know, so many things that are sort of more directly about your agenda and that they choose to talk about, um, you know, um, uh, gender nonconforming bathrooms. If you're on the right, you can talk about so many things, but they choose to talk about Hunt, or have recently cho- chosen to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop. And if you're a libertarian, it's this should be like your birthday party. This is like a fantastic moment. And, you know, any libertarian you talk to is probably going to say, well, you know, really, actually, the South, in many ways, uh, they had the constitutional right to secede. Like, that, everybody's missing the, the moment, I think. Um, so that, that's what I'm – except for the people who are, who are having a moment right now on I-95 and are either, if you follow Jonah, are, like, running to the trees or me, maybe just kind of squatting, cantilevering, feet – Legs on. Here's what I would do. Legs on. <laughs> I, legs I don't on want the, this picture in my head. And then arms holding the roll down the the, the doors, so you're kind of mm-hmm. cantilevering yourself, suspending yourself with a certain amount of privacy. See, but this is this is the kind of scenario a single man comes up with. This is a. I assume I'm there with my family, and I love. Oh, I've my eaten wife. them. I've eaten my family by now. <laughs> That's how I feel. That's what I feel. You brought this this down to earth, and I want to bring it back up to 30,000 feet, if I could, (laughs) just for a second. You brought it down to the earthiest earth that there could possibly be. I just think, given everything, you do not want to be a person whose main belief is that we need to empower government more. Because the <laughs> yeah. government not okay. only tells you to, tells you not to wear a mask and then to wear a mask, says it's okay to wear a cloth mask, and then says, you know what, cloth masks don't work. Does this, does that, does the other thing, and now leaves you stranded in your car. And an entire political party in the United States that is already in dire uh, straits heading for the next election, its central premise is that government needs more power and more authority to do more things and muck everything up even worse. And I just don't know how they get out of this. It's a very simple binary. There's one party who thinks government should do less. There's one party who thinks government should do more. Who in the United States in 2022, outside of the base of the Democratic Party, looks at what okay. has happened over the last two years and says government must do more. It must do more. It has to do more. And it has to have more power when it can't do what it's supposed to do as a simple matter, like make sure that highways don't freeze over for 70 miles. Yeah, I mean, not to be cynical, but isn't it true that there's like two kinds of people who who actively talk about how government must do, must do more, and then another half people who talk about how government must do less, but also wanted to do more. Well, they I mean, want they want they want the resources of government husbanded in you know in the direction that they that they prefer, right? I mean, so that's a, that's that's one way of looking at it. I'm just saying that if your general philosophy is government is good, this is not a good time to be. Yeah. To be a person whose general animating philosophy is that government More. is good because all we see is failure. All everywhere, everywhere, 
we see failure. I mean, even in the states that supposedly are doing what, you know, it's just not, it's not good. And at least if you don't like government, you can say, well, I never promised you a rose garden. I'm Ron DeSantis. I didn't say that we would save everything. I said, you know, we need to live with this and figure out how to live with it or something like that. I just, I just think it's like, it's like the, 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 uh, weird, the gods are aligning, uh, and the, in, in a way against, against this one party in a, in a multidimensional way that creates, you know, I don't know what avenue they will have to make a, a positive case for themselves this year. I don't know how going forward anything well, can happen. Well, you know, they can, I don't know, um... Um, they can make it. I mean, I don't know whether this will work or not, but I mean, they, they're looking for wedge issues, right? And one of them, one of them could be abortion, can it? Well, I don't know. I mean, it could, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, but I mean, I think po- I, mean, I, so po- I think I mean not to get too deep in the poli sci stuff, but like there's it's a demo demosclerosis kind of problem, right? Or where um part of the problem with the Democratic Party is that it's not just the party of government in a conceptual sense it's the party of people who work in government and right. so you can't like say hey government is is screwing up right now because you're basically saying your own voters are screwing up right now and you have to sort of pretend that there's this fiction that the government is not only really good at what it's currently doing but can actually has a lot of bandwidth to do a lot more stuff when it's sort of like you know and i talk about this all the time you guys on the commentary podcast talk about this all the time it is so obvious that Joe Biden could help himself if he picks some sister soldier moments, right? That just right. said, oh, right. Right. Know, right. almost every. We should actually just keep a running list mm-hmm. of. Oh, here's another sister soldier moment. He just let go over the plate, and the. It is so obviously in Joe Biden's interest, or in, or in any Democratic politician's interest, to say, "Hey, you know what? I believe in government." I believe government can do good things, but we're not going to persuade people government can do all the things I'd like it to do unless we can actually do the stuff that everybody expects of government, like keeping roads safe. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. You Fix know? the potholes. Um, so there is a sister soldier moment like that that is hanging there right now as of today. Uh, Alvin Bragg, who is the newly elected uh, uh, district attorney for Manhattan, um, announced in a letter to, he was just sworn in on New Year's Day, announced in a letter to his staff uh, that they would seek no carceral sentence for anyone after, you know, after trial, uh, when, when it's time for sentencing and the judge's recommendation, except for murderers. No carceral uh, punishment of any kind yeah. for any well case in, in Manhattan. In what could Manhattan, go wrong? convicted. Could go wrong? Right. Okay. So there are two politicians who have major sister soldier moments. Right. You know, hanging there. One is the mayor of New York, the newly minted mayor of New York, Eric Adams, who who uh, has made it a point of taking these moments and using these yes. moments. The one of the reasons yes. why he's mayor. Yes. So we'll see. Or Joe Biden, because Joe Biden can say, you know what, that's a bridge too far. You, we're all concerned about unequal justice and blah, 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 blah. But, you well, know, you put it that car way. thieves, you know, car, you know, people who, uh, a rapist should go to jail. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where my head went, is like, you can come up with so many arguments that dovetail with what liberals are supposed to be concerned about. Like, are you telling me that someone who um, steals the life savings of an old, poor black lady um, shouldn't go to jail? Are you telling me that someone who rapes a young woman shouldn't go to jail? I mean, you can go down a long list of things where you can even use the identity politics sort of verbiage to your advantage right. to say we're for, right. you, know, you know, fighting crime. I mean, again, this is what governments are supposed to do. It's like like Max Weber, monopoly of violence. You're supposed to governments yeah. are allowed to like, fight crime. It's what they're for. Uh, anyway, I, I, the craziness of the of the the irrationality and craziness with which Democrats, liberals, and the left are pursuing their agenda. Uh, I mean, I think they've had wild success, you know, in in sort of turning corporate America and you know, sort of American cultural institutions, institutional higher learning, to their right. ends. But uh, this um, this pursuit is like it's like watching 
people commit suicide day after day after day, like just sort of like building up the, you know, like piling up the pills just ready to have them in enough, you know, enough pills to swallow 250 pills on, you know, the the day before the election to make sure that they're, that they're toast. I, it's just, it's just astonishing to me that there, there's no sense of self-preservation, rational sense of self-preservation from, uh, from signing on to issues that make every rational person go, what are you crazy? Are you crazy? What madness has afflicted you? Mm-hmm. I, I just had a conversation with, with Yuval Levin for my podcast about this. And because in a, in one sense, it kind of makes you question the wisdom of the founding fathers who had certain assumptions about the rational self-interest of ambitious politicians to do what they needed to do to get elected. And just sort of like as Congress no longer behaves the way the founding fathers intended Congress to do, a lot of politicians are no longer behaving the way you would think they would if they just wanted to get reelected. And Yuval's partial answer, which I'm obviously very sympathetic to, is that this has to do with the fact that it's not that politicians aren't responding to incentives anymore. It's that the incentive structures within these parties have been so screwed up because of primaries and because of the sort of asymmetry of the, of the media environment that these people cannot even see what's obvious in front of their face, which is that if, they all, if, a Demo- if your average Democrat behaved more like Joe Manchin, the Democratic Party could be a majority party tomorrow. But they, yeah, right. they, right. they can't see outside as they, the as bubble. They be. And Joe Manchin represents really the, the, the 50 years, probably five decades, six decades of Democratic Party leadership. I mean, Joe Manchin is no different from Sam Nunn or Lloyd Benson or any of these other sort of like Big, Actually, yeah. back in the days of Sam Nunn and Lloyd Benson, he'd be considered a liberal. He'd, he'd be considered a liberal, of, right? Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, it's a very strange thing. It is. It is weird. I don't. I mean, I. I, I guess I can only think of it in terms of psych- psychological terms. It's this sort of inability to recognize. It's the inability to ch- to to recognize the evidence in front of you. You're too busy projecting on your enemy. That the. the the story of American politics, really, since the mid '90s, has been volatility, right? I mean, how many different speakers yeah. have we had? How many Senate majority leaders from different parties have we had? I mean, I get confused. Like, how many times has Nancy yeah. Pelosi been speaker? And didn't we wait, remember Bob Livingston? I remember like Tom? Uh, Tom well, that's a, he didn't even he didn't even get to be speaker, he right? Livingston, like, yeah. But like all this, like all that volatility after 50 years of no volatility, yeah. and they still people still believe there's no volatility. It was so, so strange to me. They, they, even now, like if 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, you had said to people uh, the uh, voter participation in a presidential election would would approach 60 percent, right, of eligible voters, Th- that would be considered oh my everything's great. Yeah. 20 years ago, all people talked about was, you know, nobody's voting, nobody's voting. Now you have this enormous amount of voter participation, and the one thing people talk about is voter suppression. It's like, are you kidding me? Suppress them some more. The numbers keep going up. So we have an inability to recognize we, – we are still saying the things that – or politicians are still saying the things – and political activists are still saying the things they said 25 years ago. It's like they're – it's like they're uh, they're, they're doing stuck on a script. script. They're stuck on yeah. a script that no longer applies yeah. to reality. I mean, and Zoe Lofgren, when she introduced that draconian, ridiculous for the people act, in her floor statement, she says, "In last year's election, we witnessed unprecedented levels of voter suppression." <laughs> and the right. thing is, in the previous election, and Biden got Democrats, eighty-one million votes. Yeah. Biden got eighty-one million votes. Yeah, the Democrats won. And they won, you know, with the biggest the biggest turnout in a hundred years in percentage terms, and the biggest turnout ever in, in absolute yeah. terms. Voter suppression had nothing to do with anything. You had drive through voting in places, it's, but they're stuck on these narratives that don't describe reality more. I mean, you all makes this point. You had a great piece in the New York Times yesterday about this, yeah. where virtually everything Republicans are saying about voting right now is not true, and virtually everything the Democrats are saying about voting right now is not true. They're both stuck on these stories about what the election yeah. was, about how voting works in this country that have nothing to do with actually some of the actual real problems that we have with 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 voting. But they're not. It's not about voter suppression. You know, it's it's never been easier in American history to vote. More people voted than ever before in the last election. And when you actually, I, I have this weird habit where I listen closely to discussions about voting rights on shows Huge like Morning like Joe. Mistake. And it is amazing how. They never bring up examples. They never say, for instance, 
in Georgia, they're doing this, or in Texas, they're doing that. They just make it a given that everyone knows that voting rights are in more peril than they've ever been before. And you would think if that were true, like almost any other public policy issue, people bring up the parade of horribles. You know, when people talk about abortion, they talk about these, you know, these very rare cases where a woman is in this very specific, terrible case, and they use this weird example, this statistical outlier example to make a sweeping case. Here, they're not even making the they're not even pointing to the specific outrage because I have to assume to some extent they don't exist. Otherwise, they would bring them up. I think we we find ourselves in a in, <laughs> we being a, a rational person looking at the at the situation rationally uh, in ter- there are different terms right you wait, want, wait that, that's you're you're saying that's you I, I would like to think it's me <laughs> okay, or, or all three yeah, of us just, okay just, just want to know what so yeah. so I, I have this gnawing thing so I keep talking about the Democrats and how unreasonable they're being. Uh, and and I, I, there are many examples I give of, of Republicans and doing self-destructive things. I think, but there was a poll earlier this week. Axios did to basically ask people what they wanted to hear talked about and what they didn't. And there are two things. Noah Rothman keeps saying this and putting it in my ear. Two things they say they don't want to hear about. One is COVID, and the other is Trump. They're sick of Trump, and they're sick of COVID. The Democratic Party can't do anything but talk about COVID and Trump. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I don't know that Republicans or official Republicans don't talk that much about Trump. I mean, Trump talks about Trump. Democrats talk about Trump. You know, they're not talking about Trump on the floor of the Senate every five seconds. They're not talking about Trump even on Fox every five seconds. They're talking about Biden. They're talking about what Biden does wrong. They're talking about Democrats being terrible, whatever. And and on on MSNBC, they're talking about Trump and COVID and what to do about COVID and how to handle Trump and all this. And it is as though they are saying, I'm going to go step on the third rail. I'm just going to keep – I'm going to just live on the third rail. I'm going to put my feet on the third rail. I'm going to touch the third rail. I'm going to do everything you don't like. I'm going to obsess over things that you don't like and talk about them and talk about them and talk about them so that you can get so sick of me that you are going to throw me out of office and turn off my network because I you can't stand to hear me say another word. Am I am I am I crazy? I mean, I, who who uh, who approaches uh, politics and and the effort to sort of get your agenda through and your and and your your philosophy through by talking about things that nobody wants to hear about anymore? The data there. I mean, I'm not making it up. No, I I mean, David Shore is running around with the data in his hands, you know, like it's the To Serve Man Twilight Zone streaming. <laughs> it's a cookbook. I mean, and, and no one's yeah. listening to him. You know, it's crazy. And you know what else is crazy? There right. we go. The year 2022 is shaping up maybe to be crazy. So don't put up with BS this year. That starts with your falling apart, scratchy, stained old sweatpants. Don't put up with that. Give your butt the upgrade it deserves and lounge like a champ with Tommy John. <laughs> yeah, and you'll need that when you're on the I-95. When you start the year wearing Tommy John, you're that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. Tommy John men's underwear has breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands, and you'll feel the same level of comfort layering their luxuriously soft loungewear Right on top. Tommy John loungewear is so comfortable and good-looking, you can and will be wearing them everywhere. With over 17 million pairs sold, Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. Plus, whatever you choose from new underwear to loungewear, it's all backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear. Or it's free guarantee. Get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash glop. Go to TommyJohn.com slash glop for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash glop. See site for details. Uh, Jonah, let, let, let's move into culture. So y- you and I have uh, watched some of this new HBO Max. I think it's on HBO Max, right? It's not on HBO. I'm not quite sure. But, um, Station 11? Station 11. Yes, it's on HBO Max. I it's on HBO Max, show. right. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's based on this um, enormously best-selling uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic novel about 
basically it's it's a sort of frou-frou version of the stand. There's a pandemic that kills 99% of the population on the earth. And we, and we flash forward between when the pandemic happened and what happened in the aftermath of it. And then 20 years later, pretty much as this merry band of actors goes around Lake Michigan performing in Shakespeare. And you wanted to talk about it, so please. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, one of the main reasons I want to talk about it is I can't remember what episode we talked about this before, but I, in an offhand way, mentioned some a grand, a, a, center, a major peeve of mine that I did not realize was a shared peeve among the three of us, which is that basically any pop culture uh, product where it's usually a sign that the show has jumped the shark, but uh, where they they embrace as a plot device focusing on a band of thespians, um, some peripatetic minstrel show that goes around screaming about how the show must go on and their craft and how much they bring to the world by uplifting them with, with their, particularly their renditions of Shakespeare. There was an episode of Star Trek that did this that was insufferable. It was the most insufferable plot line in all of uh, Game of Thrones. Um, the sort of theater troupe thing. And it seems to me it's, 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 it's one of these tells. I mean, what's yeah. interesting, what's different about Station Eleven is it's based on a book and it's central to the whole premise of the thing. But it turns out it's still just as freaking annoying. This idea that in the post-apocalyptic world, the thing that we're all supposed to recognize, that everyone needs so much more than potable water, right, or electricity, is art. It's art. It's Shakespeare. Uh, the performing arts. And it's so... Theater, R.E. So self-indulgent and... and it's all obsistic because it's, of it, course, the work of theater people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the people, we, it's, it's the theater people from high school oh, yeah. getting control of the script writing process. Uh, well, and, and also, I mean, I haven't seen this show, but the idea that the theater people from high school are going to make it through the first 24 <laughs> hours of any <laughs> event is like so ridiculous. They're the first to be eaten, the first to die in the fireball, the first to, like, there, there, there's a, there was an Independence Day, which is a pretty bad movie, but there's a great moment in it when the, the when the people are the alien ships are over over gathering over the country over the world, right? You see various places where the alien ships are. This is before they start killing everybody, and over one there are hippies with tambourines dancing, welcoming the the far the alien creatures. So we they don't know they're going to die, and that that's your theater troupe. They're the first to go. Okay, so let, let's go through the there's always this song we hate. I think we should. Hello there. Okay, we need to talk about the theater troops we hate. You have, forsooth, I do say, but is that you to say that you do do do? But it is not that thing which is is in itself incarnated. So you said you don't even like the players in Hamlet. I think it's you're, dumb. You, you, I think it's you're dumb. against the players in Hamlet. I'm against. That's how. That's how orthodox I am. You guys are are uh, are uh, are cucks. Are theater cucks. I'm true. <laughs> I think it that it does not work as a plot device. The play is the thing. Except, no, it, what do you mean? The play is the thing. Where it all catches the conscience of the king. Yeah. What, how is that going to work? I but, saw a play about the thing, and now I'm upset, and I'm going to. <laughs> no, no one ever does that. Okay, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna trump you though, because I'm gonna say this, which is you can't not like. The Trident. play in A Midsummer Night's Dream. You cannot dislike okay. the Rude Very Mechanicals good point. Make, uh, doing Pyramus of Disney because it's hilarious. The no mechanical. Mechanism and the Mechanicals. No one says that's not even a word. But yes. It was a word in the 16th century. It meant yeah, working man. Well, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Guess what? So how about that? Okay. Well, then rewrite. Then re all right. Okay, so, but all notice, right, so like, notice when it comes. Yes. When does the play in Midsummer Night's Dream come? I don't know, two-thirds of the way through? Wrong. The Wrong. play they do is the fifth act. Oh, it is the fifth act. Okay. It's the end. You can stay or go. Yeah. Even Shakespeare's like, look, for the super fans, 
you can stick around for this. The rest of you go go and have a drink at the Mermaid Tavern. Okay, so you don't like Hamlet. So you don't like the Hamlet. But so here's what I, we don't I, like. I, I, it's not that I don't like Hamlet. So we got I the Star Trek. We got the Star Trek <laughs> troupe, right? Then we got you. You mentioned the Game of Thrones troupe. We also have the Deadwood troupe. Yes, which, that's another. Which oh. was which oh, was God, almost the ruination of, of of Deadwood. Otherwise, a, yeah, a fantastic true. show. Um. We had some others too. Wait, wait, where else? Where else do we? Did we have a troop? Like, um, it is just a terrible, terrible conceit. Uh, that um, it's just great when the when the the traveling players come through and introduce a note of tension and also reflection, sort of like meta, because they're sort well, of commenting on the action. They hold the mirror up to nature, don't they? They are they us. They are yeah. showing us who we are, yes. which is so awful. And they're all like theatery. You know, theatery people in the like the loose fitting, flowing like with their clothes. didgeridoos, their didgeridoos and their whatnot. <laughs> okay, yeah. here's what I here's what I found insanely offensive about Station Eleven, which I watched two and a half episodes of and then stopped. I believe, and this is particularly offensive given what we've gone through now, uh, that it's pro pandemic. Basically, <laughs> the world twenty years after the pandemic is a Tech-free Eden. Now, granted, there are bad people. It's, 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 uh, there, there's some danger. It's this and that. But um, basically, like, it's as though America and the world become a kind of commune. And everybody is sort of sharing in goods. And, and, and all they want to do is watch Cymbeline and and Timon of Athens and I don't know it's it's no, like, you're absolutely right and this has been a, I remember writing about this a long time ago this has been a growing theme in 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 sort of intellectual pop culture for a while now um, there was this book that actually I thought was a really brilliant premise because I'm kind of fascinated by this kind of stuff which just asked the question what would happen if all the human beings on Earth disappeared tomorrow. And it ran through the world like, without us. It was called. Yeah, and, and yeah. there's some really interesting stuff in there. I, I find yeah. that stuff like interesting. Um, but uh, I think it was part of the appeal of Walking Dead. I think it's there's there's this. I mean, it's very much a sort of suicide of the West point about imagining that like if we could just get rid of this sort of like it's the it's a very Rousseauian point mm-hmm. that you know man is born free and everywhere is in chains. If we could just get rid of Instagram. You know, we would live in, in, in accord with nature and let our armpit hair speak for us. And um, it's so self-indulgent and weird. And, like, like I would love to see, actually, I think it would be a really interesting premise for a show that, you know, didn't get into the diggery-doo, you know, uh, patchouli-soaked theater troops. I mean, which is as interesting to me as if, you know, post-apocalyptic landscape the guys from the high school yearbook staff got together to make a yearbook about the apocalypse. I mean, it's just like, why are we privileging this cultural milieu from high school with giving, with some sort of great insight into the universe? But, like, some of the stuff I do like in Station Eleven is, like, the shots of how nature is, like, reclaiming big urban centers and that kind of stuff I find very interesting um, about, like, animals coming back. Um, that stuff is interesting to me, but... Uh, they can never they can never play it straight. It's always got to be holding a mirror up to today's society and showing us our faults, rather than saying, "Hey, you know what turns out is pretty awesome? Antibiotics, you know, <laughs> and electricity." You know, you know. I think a lot of this is the overhang of um, of radical environmentalism and climate change and all of that. I mean, I wrote a piece myself like ten years ago about this movie, Cabin in the Woods. Um, which basically postulates that these people are so uh, annoyed by the behavior of of, of government and and uh, secret conspiracy to sacrifice some people to the evil gods below to keep society going that basically because the, because that sucks they they end all of humanity that's the right. big plot twist at the end of Cabin in the Woods it's because the old same. people are hypocrites so we might as well kill babies yeah. and of course right. like you know in, Ava- in Avatar you know you you end up the point of the movie Avatar is to root against human beings and to root for right. the non-humans on this planet because the human beings are the bad guys. And it is a very weird twist in the tale that, um, you know, we are somehow, you know, we the, the, 
what we are, the audience, we're the bad guys, and we're supposed to sort of live as the bad guys. I, right. those, I, I don't know why people think that that's like a plot twist that people want to see, but I, I you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a creative force in, in popular culture. I do so. think that Walking Dead handles it better. Because in Walking Dead, it does it has a slightly more sophisticated and artistic point to make, which is that ultimately human beings are the biggest threat to other human beings, and it actually takes a lot of effort to sustain a civilization. And I, I think I'm like the last guy who's stayed like 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 Slim Pickens riding the missile to the very end. I've stuck with The Walking Dead, and what I kind of like about it is that we've now entered the medieval period where people are wearing armor and riding horses and have basically Mott and Bailey kind of set up a feudal city-states with gates and, and, and walls to keep nature at bay, and nature is basically the zombies, but they're still having to contend with the fact that human beings left to their own devices are dangerous, and you need rules to civilize human beings. And that civilization is actually a good thing. It took them a while to get there, but it's like... The there's a scene in Station Eleven. It's probably after you stop watching, where this horrible little kid who ends up being a villain, at least um, the at this airport that they're all stuck in. This guy has this idea of downloading big chunks of the internet, so they have like how-to manuals to figure out how to deal with the post-apocalyptic world, which is smart. And this kid is the only one who still has Wi-Fi on his like device, so he downloads big chunks of Wikipedia including the article on capitalism. And he has this idea, you know, if I just delete this file, we'll never have capitalism. And wouldn't that be great? <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's the perfect. Uh, I, I don't know. You know what? I've never seen The Walking Dead because I, I got to confess, I, I don't like zombies. Well, you're really? not supposed to like them. No, I, I mean, they creep what me out. What don't you like about them? And I, they, they, I don't like movies about prisons, and I don't like, I don't like prisons, and I don't hmm. like zombies. Oh, it's weird. something about zombies that freaks me out. I don't know. It's I love both genres for very similar reasons. I like the the spontaneous order of systems denied normal civilization. And um, you mean what what people naturally and get get up to doing, right? Yeah, what they but do. But, yeah. So I actually had a guy, uh, this guy uh, Dave Sparek, I can't pronounce his last name, who studies prisons. He's a economist, sociologist type who studies prisons and. This book is fascinating because it's called the, I'm going to butcher it, The Hidden Order of Prisons or something like that. And one of the things he points out is, like, prison gangs discover that it's really useful to have written constitutions. And so a bunch of the major prison gangs actually have written out the rules for how to regulate violence amongst their members and amongst other gangs and that kind of stuff. I find that kind of stuff just sort of fascinating. Um, but I I get not liking the state of nature. I just, I, I, you don't I, want to live in a state of nature. It, it, triggers a, it triggers some kind of claustrophobia, the prison movie in me. And I don't know what it is about zombies. It may have been that I saw a zombie movie too young at some point, and I was yeah. really grossed out by it. I mean, I did see, like, Night of the Living Dead when I was 10 or 11, and it scared the, you know. So it's, it's funny. It Max scared Bro the I-95 tree line out of me, basically. Max, <laughs> Max, <laughs> Max Brooks's uh, World War Z, which is a completely different creature than the movie, yeah. it's pretty brilliant and really well done. And one of the things in an interview that he did, um, it was weird. I thought I was, like, the only one. The thing I love about all zombie movies is, like, the first 10 to 12 minutes where society hasn't broken down yet watching, you know, and it's always just sort of glimpsed at with the news anchors yeah. trying to maintain order and the public officials trying to, like, help people out until they're just completely overwhelmed. And I always thought having a movie that actually gave short shrift to, like, the face-eating and all that crap, which gets really tedious and cartoonish after a while, and instead dealt with, like, the holy crap, what do we do conversations that you would have inside the Pentagon about how to hold on to civilization and hold on to social order would be a really interesting premise for a movie that would be actually very cheap to produce. But everyone seems to think that the only thing that reason people go to zombie movies is is all the face-eating stuff. And I find that stuff very predictable and gross and kind of boring. Um, there, did we already talk about this? There was a BBC show years and years and years ago um, called um, Under the Skin or Beneath the Skin or something. 
and it was about the aftermath of a zombie attack. A, a zombie. It, it just it didn't even bother to explain. They said, "Look, uh, it, it is one year. Everyone who died between this date and this date, at some point, just simply climbed out of their graves. They were reanimated and they climbed out of their graves." And they, to vote in Chicago. To vote in Chicago, right? And they went and they did everything the zombies do. They ate. They ate brains. So they ate. And then, then the, the, it was all in England, right? And so then they. The government kind of eventually – there were vigilantes out to kill the zombies, and the government eventually – they figured out what it was, and they called it uh, PDS, partial death syndrome. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's a little bit of a parody what would happen in a bureaucracy if this really happened. And they found out, okay, well, here's what we do. We um, – We've cured it, right? So the people who are partially dead, we can we they have a hole in the back of their head, and we give them an injection um, every couple of days, and they're they're normal. They 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 remember who they are. But that means that all these people who died, they come back with like they have like baggage from when they died, and from what they left, and the grief and all that other stuff, and the circumstances of their death, etc. So it gets super complicated, and then and then the the government get, issues them makeup. And that's how the opening scene is you see somebody like you got makeup and you got fake eyes to put over your black eyes. And so now there's a movement of the vigilantism that they that the government's trying to stamp out. But the vigilantes are saying, I don't care. They're not they're not people. They should be exterminated. Uh, and they committed crimes when they were zombies. So the, the main character is a young boy who, who committed suicide and he comes back. So he has that to do, deal with. But also he he ate. Some peeps, some friends of his, you know, he attacked some people, and he and his sister was in the vigilantes, and now she's you know got to deal with that, and um and then there's also another movement, a counter movement of former um, zombies, PDS sufferers, who are like, I'm not wearing the, I'm not wearing these damn eyes, I'm proud of who I am, I'm not going to cover up who I am, so it's kind of it, it it wasn't fully realized, but it was a really brilliant idea because the idea is like, okay, okay. You get it. Zombies, they eat brains, blah, blah, blah. Now what? And I, that's what I liked about it. The procedure. Okay, the, show is called, the show is called In the Flesh. In the Flesh. In, In the Flesh. flesh. Yeah. There, you found it. I, uh, I found it. And so now people uh, know that they can see In the Flesh uh, with Rob's recommendation. And my recommendation is ExpressVPN. Because using the internet without ExpressVPN is like having a first aid kit but not keeping it stocked up. Most of the time you don't need it at all. But when an accident occurs... You need the right bandages to stop the bleeding. Look, every time you connect to an unencrypted network at all those public places, we jump online, cafes, hotels, airports, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, your passwords, your financial details, and more. It doesn't take a genius with much technical knowledge to hack someone. Just some cheap hardware is needed. A smart kid could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers make good money selling personal info on the dark web. So ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet and keeps hackers out. It's so secure that even a hacker with a supercomputer would be stuck waiting over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. With all that security, you'll be shocked at how easy it is to use. Just fire up the app. Click one button for protection, and it works on all your devices, allowing you to stay secure even on the go. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash glop. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash glop. And you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash glop. Rob, you and I have both seen Licorice Pizza. Yes, Licorice Pizza. Should we Paul talk about Thomas Anderson's movie about... The San Fernando Valley in 1973. Now, I've written very favorably about it. I think very highly of it. But I have to confess that my critical faculties are a bit limited when it comes to movies like this because I was 12 years old in 1973. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a movie about a 15-year-old in 1973. And everything that happens in it and everything that's going on, the nostalgic rush from the meticulous recreation of 1973. Oh, yeah. uh, so tell me, because you're a little younger than I am. So, wh am I right to have loved this movie? Oh, I think so. I, I, I mean, look, it's a it's a shaggy dog story. Um, it doesn't really have a. I mean, it has a story, but not really a plot. But it's got some these fantastic, fantastic performances. This is the kind of stuff that I think this guy does the best at. He's the really. There's nobody else who can Paul, Paul keep Thomas it interesting. Anderson, Paul who Thomas wrote and directed it. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I saw it last night, and I, th I thought it was really great. And I, and I enjoy. I love the music, and I just also he he he's got this great casting. Um, 
eye. You know, he cast the the guy, the kid who plays the kid, is like conventionally not attractive. Uh, it's a little chunky, but probably right for the time. And he's got acne, and the acne never goes away. And his pants are a little too tight. You know what I mean? It's like everything about it is seems real and affectionate. And the girl is fantastic, and she's one of the singers. She's in this band called Haim. Haim? Haim. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. And she's just like, you could just watch her. So much going on in her face. Also not conventionally, like, you know, right. it's like these are real people. They, they, he just makes it seem real. I think, so it's not so much that, I mean, it is true that his period detail is right. But it's also just the human detail is right. Nothing sanitized. Yeah. Everything looks... And what I love about his movies, the one that's set in the valley anyway, it's like nobody's embarrassed to be in the valley. Like in the L.A. that I lived in for 30 years, like, you know, you, you weren't really going – I mean, movie stars weren't going out to dinner into like some steak joint in the valley. Like – but in this movie, in this movie, William really... Holden is at yeah. is at this steak joint, which is, was a real place mm-hmm. on uh, on the right on the golf course called Tail of the Cock. Tail, Tail of the Cock, yeah. Tail of the Cock. There were two of them in L.A. I looked it up. Tail of the Cock. Tail of the Cock too. Uh, so Tail of the Cock. Uh, William Holden, who is for some reason called Jack Holden, played brilliantly. Oh yeah. By oh, Sean no. Penn. He's I mean, so great staggeringly hilarious 10-minute scene of his efforts at drunken seduction of the of Alana oh, Himes. It's just screamingly funny, yeah. Who has just come from a reading with this William Holden character, a, a script from a movie that William Holden made in 1973 called Breezy, the right. second film right. directed by Clint Eastwood, which is all about how a lunky 50-something broken-down drunk like William Holden <laughs> has this free-spirit 18-year-old who just can't get enough of him yeah, because uh, he's just so wonderful. One of these, like, uh, you know, fantasy film, you know, middle-aged fantasy That's a great films. performance. It's like, and, and you know, yeah. and, and Bradley Cooper does this great um, – is great as John Peters. In fact, for some reason, it's Jack Holden, and we know it's William Holden, but it's John Peters is really John Peters, and I think maybe because because this really really happened. John Peters or, is the only one who's a lot who's actually I I, I maybe thought he Gary Getzman. It's also loosely based on stories, lore, and tales that um, that a, a producer named Gary Getzman, who's actually Tom Hanks's, has been Tom Hanks's producing partner for many many years. Yeah. Um, it, it, from his life, which includes selling waterbeds and beanbag chairs and um, pinball, you know, a lot of other pinball, and pinball machines. Pinball yeah. The yeah. irony about the pinball thing is that this is the weird thing for me. Is that I'm 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 uh, on the board of this thing called the, um, uh, the Moving Picture Institute, and uh, so it gives money to you know, aspiring young filmmakers, mostly um, you know who are telling trying to tell stories that are uh, from a more uh, liberty liberty focused. Um, anti-bureaucratic, anti-government kind of focus. So let's make of that we will. And uh, these uh, the young brothers, um, um, the Bragg brothers, they call themselves, B-R-A-G-G, that's their name. They, they made a movie, and it's like, I just saw the rough cut, and it's great. It's really fun. Uh, and it takes as it's the, – the, the source of this movie, and the, the point of the movie is the story of how pinball machines became legal again in the mid-'70s, right when – this is a big part of the story, and I, I had just seen that. I just seen the rough cut. Of that yeah, in licorice and, pizza. We, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. Yeah, in licorice pizza, the same story. And I had no idea. I really didn't know that they were not. There were places, a lot of places, Chicago, L.A., New York, a lot of cities where pinball machines were illegal for like forty or fifty years, or forty. Very years, dangerous, right? you know, because there's trouble in River City. Right. Basically, it was that. You know, it was like this is corrupting the morals of the youth. Anyway, there was a hilarious bit about about the pinball machines, and um, and where the movie has its longers is um, is a is a sort of an ending uh, involving a real a real world Los Los Angeles politician named Joel Walks, who was a closeted uh, gay man who ran for. Um, is it mayor of Studio City? It was no, mayor no, of Los mayor, Angeles? Mayor of Los Angeles. Oh, mayor he, ran, he, ran for mayor of Los Angeles. And for some Norton. reason, it plays this very large 
part in the last 20 minutes for reasons that elude me. And this is where Paul Thomas Anderson is weak with his plotting is he never know. He doesn't really know how to end his movies, and um, yeah. and 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 they, he often goes off on these bizarre tangents, like in Boogie Nights. Suddenly, you're getting this the murder of uh, of John Hall, this murder that the porn star John Holmes was involved in on Wonderland Avenue in 1981. And there's like a 15 minute scene with a shootout, and it's like, what the hell is this doing here? That's and great, uh, or the frogs in Magnolia. I don't know, but anyway, I love licorice pizza. Give licorice pizza. Give licorice pizza a chance, and particularly if you are uh, approaching your your sixties, um, uh, it, it will it will just wash over you like a like a like a joy. And I think anyway, uh, Joan, I want to hear what you may have to uh, propose to people from your two weeks, uh, you know, on Christmas viewing that wasn't Station Eleven. But first, get next chair, okay? Look, you dread sitting down at your desk. You won't dread sitting down at your desk anymore if you get an X chair. Because, you know, now you look forward to sitting in your office because your body will feel so much more supported and comfortable and more comfort means more productivity. That helps the X chair pay for itself thanks to how much more work you'll get done every day. And if I'm feeling tight or stressed, I just turn on the LMX massage feature, choose from four different massage options. If my office is running hot or cold, I flip on the LMX temperature regulation and either heat or cool my lower back. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. So take my advice. Try the X-Chair for yourself risk-free 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. So go to xchairglop.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, glop.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair for $100 off your offer. Your order, X-Chair, has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XChairGlop.com. Jonah, do you have anything that you saw that you think people might enjoy? Um, um, you know, we talked about it before. You gave up on it a while ago. Uh, the new season of Expanse, I think, is great so far. I, I still love the show. Um. I watched Hawkeye, which I think is worth watching if you if you have a kid who's like into the Marvel stuff. I don't have I don't have much else to um recommend on that front. And 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 um and I should say, you know, for listeners who don't know, I had COVID over Christmas and um big deal. I don't know about you guys. I, I know John's experience with COVID was totally anticlimactic, um, but it really messed it messed me up, and I'm convinced that I have COVID brain, um, in part because um, I f- not only do I just feel dumber, um, which you know we can have an argument about whether that's a meaningful thing for me, but um, it's also very weird. I wonder if I mean Pod because he lives. He considers his body a temple and lives a temperate life. Uh, may not have much experience with this, but I have found since I got over COVID that alcohol, caffeine, and nicotine do not have the same effect on me that they did before. And which, of course, has required me to up the gain on all yeah, three. Yeah, you got to like <laughs> re, you got to recommit. It's your problem. Um, but um, uh, it, it 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 knocked me on my ass and. Um, and it's it's interesting to me just the incredible because everyone's getting it now, the incredible diversity of experiences with it um, is sort of fascinating to me. But no, I don't have any great um, additional viewing because I didn't okay. do any. Well, I, I I got it, and I was I really it really was barely even a cold, and 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 people in my family got it, and it was pretty much the same. I wonder. If you got Omicron, or whether you got, or maybe you, maybe you had a breakthrough case of Delta, because I strongly so suspect I, I had Omicron. It was almost oh, yeah. entirely. Um, I didn't have any of like the major. Lung you didn't have the taste, smell, lung yeah. taste. Right. But I had an absolutely terrible sore throat. I mean, a uh-huh. viciously. I bad had that sore too. Throat. Yeah. And one of the things that was sort of fascinating to me about it was that it kind of felt like. Um, you know, I don't have peanut allergies, but I know people who do, and they talk about how their throat closes up, and that created a certain amount of panic in me. But it really hurt 
but it didn't get better over time. It just hurt and hurt and hurt, and then immediately, like at 11.23 a.m. on a Wednesday, stopped hurting. Wow. And the exact same thing happened to David French, which I just think is just really weird. Um, but that is I don't have so, any other... so odd. So um, I saw, and it will be on Apple TV, I think, this weekend, like I think on the 7th or the 8th or something. I could be wrong, and maybe a little later. I saw the tragedy of Macbeth, which is the Joel. Oh wow! How was that version? So uh, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. So I really wanted to love it. I oh, really no. did. Oh no! You're gonna tell and me you didn't. I. Oh no. Well, okay. So here's my here's here's what happened to me. I got this thought in the middle of the movie, and it ruined the rest of the movie for me. And so I'm now going to do it, and I'm going to ruin your the rest of the movie for like, everybody. Else. Why does he kill the guy? No. So it's very it, it it has a design scheme, okay? And the design scheme is it's German expressionism. It's like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or so sure. one of those sure, sure. early silent German movies, which is all or, or M, right. like all angles, all you know staircases that have weird perspectives and light going in a weird pattern. It's in this kind of silver and it's beautiful it's beautifully executed it's an amazing thing to look at but there's one scene where someone is standing at the top of the stairs or climbing up the stairs or going on a battlement or something like that and suddenly i thought to myself you know what this looks like it looks like what's opera doc what's oh. opera doc being the looney tunes cartoon in sure. which bugs bunny and elmer fudd do um kill the rabbit kill, kill the, the rabbit, rabbit. Yeah, to, to wagner Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. And you may remember, like, he's running up the stairs and down the stairs, and it's this Chuck Jones, you know, it's like, and so it kind of looks like that at a certain point. Um, and suddenly it was like I started hearing Kill the Wabbit in, in my head while while Denzel Washington is yeah. saying, if we're done, we're better done quickly, screw your courage to the sticking post, you know, out, out, right. brief candle. And then in the back of my head, it's like, Kill the Wabbit, Kill the so I, <laughs> Well, um, I guess I would, you know, at least, you know what? At least the theater troupe didn't show up. It didn't? Are you sure? No, I'm not actually sure. I'm hoping. Okay, I, 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 I hope you're right that the theater troupe didn't show up. But you know I'm what? Trying also, to like, now. here's the thing. Just to go back to theater troupe for a minute, I know we want to wrap. In fact, I, I'm, I'm saying we should wrap. But that, that, that the theater troopiness of the theater troupe musicals, the horrible Pippin and the loathsome Godspell and all those, the horrible, where it's like we're just the theater troupe. We're just building. They come on stage and there's nothing there. And they're like, we have a story and magic to do. And it's like they're, we're a troupe of like artisans and like dancers and we're going to tell a story. Like, I'm out. Hard pass. You know, fortunately, most people, unlike, unlike you, and, you and me, mo most people take a hard pass on that in, in, in general. And we do have oh. the phenomenon, it appears, of um, of uh, the fact that the American film-going audience appears to have fallen out of love with going to anything musical anyway. Um, as West Side Story is tanked and The Heights tanked, we sure. have coming any minute Peter Dinklage, uh, who is Tyrion in Game of Thrones, playing Cyrano de Bergerac, which is sort of an interesting idea, right? So instead of Cyrano being, you know, having this, you know, uh, um, uh, huge, nose. huge nose, he's, he's a dwarf. But, but he's right. got to have the big nose. He doesn't have the big nose. He's a dwarf. The whole, that's his, the that's best his part of, That's dumb. I hate it already. Okay, but The story it's a is he's got a big nose. In, in fact, he has an entire monologue and story yes. about how you, instead of saying he's got a big yeah. nose he's got a whole thing so now it's i'm so yeah. sure oh, no. no anyway oh. anyway cyrano is fantastic by the way that's something i saw on stage like 10 years ago yeah. you can't go wrong with cyrano it's like one of the great and it's 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 relatively new like you think of it as like being a work contemporaneous with shakespeare it was written like i think around the turn of the 20th century actually um, and it's, you know, verse play, but it's kind of like a popular... Anyway, it's a mm -hmm. musical, this Cyrano. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, songs by the rock group called The National. And yeah, if please. you watch the trailer, there's a lot of, like, 
And I, I want something to believe in. Oh, and, no, you know, the no, noblemen no, are no. all doing a kind of right. jig. And you're like, oh, my God, what, have you people gone insane? I don't even like that. Who's going to watch the, this? I'm like when, when, uh, when uh, just to brag on Hamilton, when Ophelia goes and drowns herself and she's singing Hey Nani Nani songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah. you know what? Go drown yourself. So you're going to sing the Hey Nani Nani. <laughs> no, go. Done. You're but it's a out. mad scene. It's a mad scene. Yeah, right. But I, then I don't. Then you know what? Describe it. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> I so forgot you to mention. I, there's one thing I did watch on um, over Christmas, but I don't recommend it. I'm going to give a negative recommendation so people don't watch it. Was uh, don't look up, which I watched the whole thing with my daughter because she wanted to watch it and she hated it. I thought it was terrible. Um, I just wrote my LA Times column about it. Have you guys watched it? I've not seen the picture. No, but I gather if you think it's terrible, that just proves that you don't care about the planet. That's what its director, Adam McKay, said. If you well, don't so, like his movie, you don't care about the planet. So you probably shouldn't see it because you don't care about the planet. What if I don't care about the planet and I like it? That's uh, No, oh, it just, you won't like it. There's no way mind. you won't you like it. You blown my <laughs> mind. There's no way you'll like it. I mean, and it's funny. I read a lot because the LA Times didn't want me to write about it, so I, I was I wrote about the response to it more than the actual thing. But it's amazing if you read the you know the Tiffany reviews in like places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's this is a recurring theme where they give the blurbs that the promoters will want, but then in the next paragraph they kind of concede it's it doesn't work. And it's kind of garbage. So, like, the Washington Post says, it's a satire in the mold of uh, Dr. Strangelove and Idiocracy. Well, so, first of all, just for the record, Dr. Strangelove and Idiocracy, you can like both movies. I like both movies. Very different movies. Yes, yes. The idea that there's one mold that both of those two movies fit into is just hot garbage. Um, but the theme that a lot of the reviewers keep coming back to is, you know, I think as the New York Times critic put it, you know, at the end of the day, McKay is just yelling at us, but of course we deserve it. And that came up, I think, in the post, the New York Post review as well, this idea that we deserve to be hectored, even though the hectoring isn't all that funny and doesn't really work. And the premise of the movie is it, it doesn't make any sense unless you are willing to believe that the New York Times and MSNBC and those kinds of outlets pay no attention to climate change. That's the essence of the argument. I mean, a yeah, part of the uh, argument. That's and, great. And like, like, literally, the New York Times drops its coverage of an impending asteroid strike that will wipe out all life on planet Earth because it doesn't get enough web traffic when they first break the story. And, like, it should not fall to people like me to defend the New York Times <laughs> against this charge. But if you actually can, I mean, like, if you can, like, Adam McKay says in interviews that, like, he and David Sirota, which is, of course, a giveaway, um, who was co-creator of the story. Co-creator of the story and Bernie, uh, Bernie Sanders' web, web voice. Right. And, and, yeah. and a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. Well, but, but, like, they talk about how there's very little coverage of climate change, and when they do get coverage, it's always like the fourth or fifth story that's never urgent enough. Oh my God! It's 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 yeah. in stories about everything. Everything. It's in stories. Of, it's in. It's and in stories. It's in the book reviews. It's in weddings. It's in the wedding section. Yeah. It's in Sunday styles. <laughs> Bernie Sanders says all the time that climate change is the moral and literal equivalent of essentially an asteroid strike. He says it's an yeah. extinction level threat. Is an existential threat. The, and he, again, part of the argument of the movie is that our political class refuses to get, pay any attention whatsoever to climate change when, like, we're spending untold hundreds of billions of dollars reorienting our entire economy around climate change. It is, it's, it's satire based on a premise that is. I mean, we talked earlier about following narratives that aren't true. These guys think that they are really putting their finger on the total, like, you know, ignoring of climate change by by politicians and by the mainstream media, when that, in fact, is just freaking not happening. I mean, it's just, well, it's so dumb. So I haven't seen it because I don't want to get angry and 
I don't see the point of it, whatever. But I, I am amused by one thing, which is that this is a very, this is not a well-liked movie. And it's actually not a well-liked movie on the left, which I didn't expect. And the reason is that liberals and leftists are offended by it because they don't like the idea that there is this, you know, like Morning Joe is, right, one of the satirical targets of it. Right, there's like Kate right. Blanchett plays Mika Brzezinski or something, a version of Mika Brzezinski. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but the idea is that you know nobody cares about climate change except you know Adam McKay, David Sirota, and the character. You know, because this asteroid strike is the version of climate change in the movie, and um, and liberals don't don't like it that they're told that they're not serious enough about it. They don't like it. They don't. They want to get credit for caring and they don't like being told that they don't care enough and they're mad at it and they're mad about it and they don't like the movie and that is that fascinates me because that just shows that a lot of the virtue signaling around climate change is also about just more separation from the evil capitalists who just want to you know, uh, d- perform their depredations on our on our on our environment and on you know and on our earth and all of that, and they're they're better because they know that's bad. And this movie basically says, again, I haven't seen it, but judging from the reaction, says it's not enough. Just caring like that is not enough. You have to like spend 24 hours a day screaming at the top of your lungs, otherwise you are basically. Uh, complicit, right, in the destruction yeah, but, of humanity. But the utter nonsense of even I that know. point is that Adam McKay doesn't spend all his time talking about climate change. This is the only thing he's ever done about climate change, and he's not going to do another movie about climate change. He's checked a box. Because yeah. the system won't let him. <laughs> all right, well, you know They what? want their money, Jonah. They want their money. Their money. The system's about that's why, money. Yes, that's why he got $100 million to make this movie. If only we could just delete the Wikipedia page on capitalism. <laughs> okay, we'll reconvene in a couple of weeks. See you guys. <laughs> wow, that was, nice segue. Hey, you're the one who said on our That's chat true. here, sadly, I fellas, I have to run. So I'm I letting do you need run. To run. I'm so sorry. Run and run free. for exercise. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, see you All soon. Right. See you soon. See you, fellas. See ya. By the way, there, there might be a point in this um, in our recording where I receive my <laughs> PCR test results. I think everyone should keep talking at once. Ricochet. Join the conversation.